You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. My name is Eugene. Uh, I've had several opportunities to be here at UPC for various reasons. Had a wedding here once, had an opportunity to meet with some of your pastors in years past. And I want you to know that as a fellow citizen in Seattle and as a pastor of another local church, we rejoice in what God is doing here at your church. We're so glad that we're part of the larger Capital C Church together. One body, one church together for the glory of God. I thought what I would do before we read our scripture passage today is to share maybe a couple more information with you so that you're not listening to a, a stranger, if you will. Uh, I was born in Seoul, South Korea, and immigrated to the United States when I was six years old. There's a longer, big story here, but my parents were born in what is now called North Korea before the war broke out and the line was divided. We continue to pray for what's going on in the peninsula of Korea. But I have now been in Seattle for 20 years, meaning I have survived 20 winters here in Seattle. <laughs> this being probably the worst. And my wife and I, we've been married for 20 years as well. Our eldest is a freshman at the University of Washington. This is our family. We look this good all the time. There's no Photoshop. We, our kids wear those kinds of dresses every day. Uh, clearly, this was from a few years ago. But my wife is a marriage and family therapist. Pause for dramatic effect. It basically means that she wins every argument in our house. And it's not even fair. Now, some of you might be therapists here, so don't be offended, but therapists also have an important resource, an important book, book called the DSM book. It's a diagnostic or diagnosis statistics of mental disorders. It's a diagnosis book, basically. And so when my wife and I, we get into a discussion, which is a pastoral word for saying fight, because it happens once every seven years, um, she mysteriously grabs her DSM book. And as we're arguing, she'll say, Eugene, hold on for a second. I need to check something. Eugene, hold on. Oh, oh, oh Eugene, it says here, that you're wrong. <laughs> and she wins again. It's just not fair. But it is good for us to be together because as we have been singing and reciting, Easter is not over. We're in the season as we continue to celebrate the resurrection of Christ as we head into Pentecost. But I hope and I pray that even though we might not be wearing our Easter suits or dresses or special hats, that the joy of the Lord, the hope of the risen Christ is with you. So let's pray together as we read the scripture. God, thank you again so much. As we open up the word, as we open up the gospels, we ask for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to be with us this morning. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And all God's people said, 
Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. I believe the scripture will also be available on the screens for you to follow along. Listen now for the word of God. One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. I want you to use your imagination and let's just use this uh, stage as a prop. And when I read this story, I can't help but compare or juxtapose these two crowds, if you will. One certainly is larger. Now, we know that Jesus is the central figure of the story as he is the central figure of the Gospels, of the narrative of Scripture. And on one side of stage, I want you to imagine this house, and it is full of Pharisees and teachers of the law that had gathered from all around the region. The Bible says that it was so full that no one is able to enter this place. So Pharisees, maybe some Essenes, maybe a couple members of this group called the Sanhedrin, the high ruling order. The point is the who's who of religious people have gathered in this place. The folks with titles and fancy robes, if I can just be blunt, it's the folks that uh, when they walk around the town, people can instantaneously identify them because religious leaders were deemed with high regard and respect. So that's the scene of the town. And on the other scene of the town is that we have a paralytic and we learn through another version of the Gospels that there are four men that have joined together, they've partnered together, they've collaborated together to help and assist this particular paralytic. Now, I just want you to compare these two scenes. The story, the meat of this particular gospel story comes to us because of the faith of these four friends. And my whole sermon is about these four friends and four things that I want to share with you about them and what we can learn from their faith. But as we look at this scene here, I can't help but just assess the irony of religious leaders, the who's who, and Jesus, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Good Shepherd, the Way, the Truth, the Life, Jesus, the Messiah is among them, and they miss him. The irony of that. Jesus is in their midst, and he and they miss them. 
In many ways, I think there is a moment for us to pause and say, is it possible that you and I, as religious people, as people of faith, those who are members, those who have been baptized, those who serve, whatever it might be, is it possible that we might miss the work of God, the movement of the Holy Spirit, Jesus in our midst? It's a good question to ask. Because although my initial personal inclination is to side with this group as someone that's been a follower of Jesus since the age of 18 and as a pastor knowing bylaws and constitutions and polity and sessions, the reality is I'm probably more in this group. And I can miss it. This might sound a little abrasive, but I've come to learn both in my life and in the life of other believers and Christians that I meet, sometimes the most difficult people to lead to Jesus are Christians. So we have to have open hearts, open minds. We have to be tender and teachable so that we're not so much about empty religion as opposed to a living, vibrant relationship with the risen Christ. Now, I'm so inspired by this scene here. And the first thing that inspires me before we go into the four things, the four characters about these particular men, is that I'm inspired by the fact that they're nobodies, especially in comparison to the who's who. They have no fancy titles. They're not given names. The Bible doesn't go into any sort of descriptives about who they are. And why is this good news? I'm not trying to diminish your jobs, your degrees, your whatever it might be. I'm not trying to diminish it. What I'm trying to say is that God's ability to use you for his glory is not contingent on your pedigrees, your degrees, your jobs, or your neighborhood belongings. It's really about you and I being willing to be available, to be used by God for his glory and honor. In fact, if we're honest, with the exception of Jesus, the only perfect person in the history of the world, the Bible only has stories of broken, fallen women and men who make themselves available by God's grace and God uses them. I don't know about you, but that's good news. That is such Good news. Now, just in case you might not be tracking with me, let me just go on a litany of some of the characters that we know in the Bible, and you'll know how broken and fallen they were. Adam and Eve lied, concealed, accused, and God did not abandon them. Abraham and Sarah were old, meaning back then that God was done with them, and they had serious marriage issues. Noah was a drunk. Jacob was insecure, Joseph was abused, sold into slavery. Imagine all the therapy he needed to go through. <laughs> Moses had a stuttering and confidence problem, was also a murderer. Elijah was depressed, Rahab was a prostitute. David had a list too long for the sermon. <laughs> Esther was an orphan. Jonah was rebellious, unwilling to listen to God's instructions, hated the Ninevites. John the Baptist was just... Weird. <laughs> Martha was a workaholic. The Samaritan woman had numerous failed relationships. 
ostracized in her own community. Thomas had doubts. Matthew was a tax collector and thus a traitor who worked for the villainous Roman Empire. Priscilla was a tent maker. Paul was a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church. Timothy was timid. My point is add your name to this list. God is not yet done with you. And that's good news. If you're breathing right now, if you're breathing, know that God is not yet done with you. And so these men, they choose to be available for God's serving, God's using, if you will. So what are the four things that we can learn from them? The first that I would share with you is that they had a spirit of faith in Jesus. The Bible does not go into details where or when or how, at least in my exegesis, in my reading, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that these men, these folks had an encounter with Jesus at some point. And it begins to change and form and transform them in some way. Maybe they heard his teachings. Maybe they witnessed a miracle. But this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We're not concocting things. We're not fabricating things. What we do is a response to the love and grace, the presence and power of God. That's what worship is. They have an encounter, and they're not just moved by humanism. They're not just moved by compassion. They're not just moved by good deeds. All of those are good things. They're responding to Jesus. What they're saying is, yes, people matter. This paralytic matter. But we also believe that Jesus is worth bringing people to. As we talk about the kingdom of God, which is such an important crux and core of our theology as followers of Jesus, my point is, in the kingdom of God, don't forget there's a king and his name is Jesus, and we want people to know Jesus, and we do what we do because of Jesus. Now, I was 18 years old when I made a personal decision to follow Christ. I was working the summer before college in my mother's small little deli that she had in a larger complex called an IBM building in Sunnyvale, California. And in this store, there was also this Hispanic custodian by the name of Remando Gonzalez. Now, he spoke very limited English, and so I felt like I labored through four years of Spanish in high school to be able to hear the gospel from Raimondo in a very fresh and convicting way. He would come to me because we became friends, and for those three months, he would come to me and say, Eugenio, tu necesitas Jesucristo en tu corazón. Eugene, you need Jesus in your heart. And every single day, he would share one or two Bible verses with me. It was discipleship, even though I had no idea what that was. One of the favorite verses that he would teach me was from John chapter 14, verse 6, where it says, Yo soy el camino, la verdad y la vida, le contestó Jesús. Nadie llega al Padre sino por mí. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. I'm so glad that, yes, he believed I mattered, but he also believed that Jesus was worth introducing me to. 
in an increasingly complex and nuanced and multicultural, multi-polytheistic worldview, my prayer for us as followers of Jesus is let's not forget the centrality of the risen Christ, Jesus, in our lives, that he is the hope for the world. So that's the first thing, is that they had faith in Jesus. The second thing is that they were marked or distinguished by a, a spirit of compassion. They cared. Now, I know what you're thinking. This isn't rocket science. As Christians, obviously, we're supposed to care. But I think there are two challenges towards compassion in our world today. One, it is easy or at least easier to be tempted to turn off that compassion element about our discipleship. Too much data, too much information, inundation, cable news, and the list goes on. There's so much bad news that it's easy to be desensitized to what's going on. Whether it's searing gas, whether it's homelessness, whether it's addiction, whether it's concentration camps, whether it's conflict, the list goes on and it's so overwhelming. The second reason why this is tempting is that if we're honest, sometimes our sense of compassion, our compass, is usually formed by those that look like me, think like me, feel like me. And so we have a limited sense of compassion. I sometimes get the question from one of our congregants, they'll say, Pastor Eugene, how do we wrap our mind around so much brokenness in the world? That's a classic Seattle question where we want to understand, rationalize, intellectualize everything because we're voted the smartest city in the United States. Congratulations. <laughs> so we want to understand, and I get it, and my answer to you is that it may not be the totality of a sufficient answer, but how do we understand, how do we put our mind to so much brokenness in the world? We begin and it's sustained with our hearts. We got to care. We cannot grow hardened or callous by the brokenness in the world. And I think one of the most powerful, significant, even biblical things that we can do to foster, to cultivate a culture of compassion in our lives is that we have to look at people in the eyes. In the eyes. Now, I don't have the time to look at every single person in the eyes here. And it would be awkward. <laughs> but if I were to look and to lock eyes on someone, the reason why it's significant is that in looking at this person, and I acknowledge there's nuances with different cultures, but when you look at someone, what you're saying is what? In essence, you're saying, I see you. I see you. And as you see that person, you're saying, I believe in your value, in your worth, in your dignity. As Christians, we're saying, I believe that you are created in the image of God. And how powerful that is. Think about this. Jesus performs lots of amazing miracles. The resurrection of the dead, Talitha Kum, little girl, I say to you, get up. That's pretty impressive. The feeding of the multitudes is very impressive. When I read the Gospels, the thing about Jesus that 
captivates my attention and my affection is how he stops and looks at people in the eyes. The Samaritan woman at the well, he sits and he engages the Samaritan woman. Those who have leprosy, he pauses and he treats them with respect and dignity. It's not just physical healing, but he brings emotional, holistic healing by the way he treats them. Or how about that woman who's suffering from internal hemorrhaging? And she's been ostracized in her own community. And she's like working and worming through the crowd, pushing through others who are trying to get to Jesus. In her mind, she's thinking, if only I can touch Jesus, I will be healed. She touches Jesus. She's healed. And then Jesus asks a ridiculous question. Who touched me? Now, do you know why that's a ridiculous question? Because you're Jesus. You know everything. It's a question that he asks, not for himself, but because he wants to give the disciples and the audience around him a glimpse of the kingdom of God, that in God's kingdom, the king stops and looks at the woman in the eyes. See, I don't have a solution to all of the ailments of society. And I'm not suggesting that we stop with looking at people in the eyes, but it has to include this. Compassion begins when we can look at the paralytic and realize we need this person as much as that person needs us, and collectively we need Jesus in our lives. When I was a college student some years ago, I was a, a double major studied psychology and theater, and I was horrible in theater. The director of this one particular play, I was cast for two plays. The director was brilliant, but he was also known for his bluntness. So one day after rehearsals, he comes to me and says, Eugene, you're horrible. You're jumping on lines. You don't understand the tension that exists in this person's character. All you're doing is regurgitating lines. And he says, Eugene, if you take your craft seriously, I want to release you from rehearsals for an entire week. I want you to live out in the streets for an entire week. Come back next week. So I took his invitation seriously. I did not survive an entire week. It was too hard. And for four days, three nights, I went to San Francisco, which is my hometown, on a street called Market Street, in front of a department store called Macy's, and I parked myself with a sleeping bag, made myself a sign, and for those four days, three nights, thousands of people walked past because it was our shopping and financial district. Thousands of people walked past me, and occasionally, someone would fling or hurl or throw some change my way. But what I remember then that has shaped the way I want to live my life, and it's hard, is that for those four days, three nights, nobody would look at me in the eyes. They would not look at me in the eyes. And I have never felt so insignificant, so inconsequential, so invisible. This is why when we acknowledge each other's humanity, it matters. 
May you be marked by a spirit of compassion. The third thing is that they had a spirit of collaboration. Use your imagination. Here's an adult grown paralytic. One person could not carry this person on a mat. It would have been too difficult and too challenging. It required teamwork. It required partnership. It required collaboration. And that's a good thing. There are many things that you and I can do alone. I'm an extreme introvert. So I like doing things alone. But I've come to learn that one of the things that you cannot do alone is you cannot follow Jesus alone. The body of Christ is comprised of women and men, young and younger, people of all backgrounds and ethnicities, together bound by our desire to follow the risen Christ together. For those who chose to become members, it's good news because what they're saying is, I want to be on mission together with people that have gathered in this service, in this church. If you're not following me, let me give you an example. Some months ago, I was playing basketball with my son. Ken was too nice about the descriptive, but thank you so much for building my legend, if you will. <laughs> I've ruptured both my Achilles playing basketball the last few years, so I've slowed down a little bit. But I was playing basketball with my son, who's 13 years old. I'm pulling a wicked double crossover move on my son, which if you don't know what that means, it's impressive. I do a double crossover move on my son, and he twists his ankle, and he sprains it. He's hurt. Like a loving father, I go to my son, and I say, son, are you okay? And he goes, I don't know if I can walk. I say to him, we're about a half a mile from our house. I say, um, let's go home. Get on my back. I'll carry you home. Jedi, which is his real name, Jedi gets on my back, and I take seven steps towards the house, and then I say, get off. <laughs> My 13-year-old son is 5'11". <laughs> get off. Uh, honey, can you pick us up? Um, we're around the corner. Because it's impossible. This story could not have been possible, doable, feasible, without the collaboration, the partnership of these folks. The church, we need all of you. Every member is a minister. We need women and men, young and younger. We need you for this church to be healthy and to be thriving and to be faithful. So they had the spirit of partnership and collaboration. There's a proverb that's not from the Bible, but I love it and it resonates with me. And it comes from East Africa and it goes like this. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Make a decision. You want to go fast or do you want to go far? May we collaborate together. The fourth thing is that they were marked by a spirit of perseverance. Now, this is really important because anytime you begin something new, a new project, a new church plant, a new business, a new entrepreneurial idea, a new whatever it might be, there's always energy and momentum and buzz when something gets started. Whatever it might be. But we all know what happens. Eventually, that initial momentum and excitement wanes. 
I can imagine these four friends saying, all right, paralytic guy, we're going to get you on this mat. You on that corner, you on that corner, you on that corner, I'm on this corner. We're going to sing oceans again for the thousandth time together. We're like coming and walking along and things are going well. But what happens? Maybe there's tiredness, exhaustion. We're not sure what the distance is from point A to point B. Maybe they start arguing. Maybe they start having theological disagreements. I don't know what the deal is, but my point is this. Eventually, there will be pushback, setback, opposition, and the list goes on. And you have to ask the question, are we in it for the long haul? To follow Jesus is not a sprint. To do the work of mercy, justice, compassion, to live out, to embody the whole gospel, it's a marathon. And some of you are exhausted. And there are seasons where we should rest, but don't give up. Don't quit. About 17 years ago, when my wife and I, we were trying to plant Quest Church, things did not go as we had hoped for or intended. The church plant started a year later than we envisioned. I realized very quickly that a master's of divinity degree is useless to society. Nobody would hire me. I was unemployed for a while. Our family, we were on food stamps for a season. And eventually, I finally landed a job as a janitor, the official custodian at a Barnes and Noble store in Linwood. Now, I'm not saying that a janitor was beneath me. It was hard because it was the last thing that I imagined in our Excel sheet of planting a church. And during this time, my mother flew up from San Francisco to Seattle to encourage us, but I had forgotten or intentionally neglected to tell her that we got a job because I was so embarrassed. So about 6.30 in the morning, I'm walking downstairs to our kitchen, and I had forgotten that my mother is one of those mothers that love to get up early in the morning to pray and sing Korean hymns offbeat. <laughs> and she would be singing and she looks at me and says where are you going now if I was in high school I would be tempted to lie and say I'm going to the library to study for my SATs <laughs> true confession and so I say ah oh, yeah 어머니 저 um, 일 가요 I'm going to work. She says, praise God, hallelujah, I'm so glad you got a job. Because she had been praying for us. What kind of work? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, wow, you guys understand Korean, it's amazing. Um, yeah, 어머니 저 청소해요. I'm a custodian. And my mother is sitting at the dining table at this time, and she just gets up really slow and dramatically, scaring the living daylights out of me. <laughs> now, if you were to visit Quest, you would instantaneously recognize my mother because she's the one that walks like this every Sunday to the communion line. Bad hips, bad knees because of working so many years standing at the grocery store in the deli. And she's walking towards me, and I'm not quite sure what she's about to do. 
in my mind, millions of synapses is crossing my mind. Do I defend myself? What do I do? <laughs> and she actually, I'll never forget this, she actually walks past me really slowly. And the next thing you know, she walks past me. Is she going to the restroom? I'm not sure. She opens the closet door, gets her jacket, slowly puts on her jacket, turns around, and then she says these words I'll never forget. Unjina, katchi gaja, toajuke. Which means, Eugene, let's go together. I will help you. And that's the kind of perseverance and tenacity. That's the kind of collaboration that we need in the church. My favorite part of the story, and I'll close with this, my favorite part of the story is that it could have ended right when it began, when the four friends gather around the paralyzed guy and say, hey, let's talk about this, let's analyze this, let's theologize about this, hey, but let's liturgize about this, let's have a committee about this, let's, well, let's just hang out. And I'm not suggesting those things are bad, they're actions, but ultimately, we need to move. We need to do something. Because to know about something theologically or intellectually is a part of our faith. It must never be the totality of our faith. Some of you, I think I've lost. Let me give you an example and I'll close with this. I love, I love exercise. As you can tell by my physique. I love exercise. Don't laugh. I love exercise. Now, I'm at church at UPC, beautiful stained glasses. I can't lie to you. I don't love exercise. I love the idea of exercise. <laughs> and they're two totally different things. I had a gym membership for 10 years. And during those 10 years, I went to the gym once. <laughs> to give them my credit card. <laughs> I have a treadmill at the basement of our home. It's covered with coats and jackets. My tablet downloads health magazines that I subscribe to. But you see my point. I can teach you about exercise. I can sing about exercise. I can talk about exercise. Do you know how many calories you lose thinking about exercise? Sorry, I just did 10 push-ups right now. And that's really where I think that's what James was saying. Faith without works is dead. Will you be marked by faith, by compassion, by collaboration, by perseverance? Let's do the work of the kingdom of God together. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here at UPC. Thank you for what you're doing in this church and in the Capital C Church, especially in the city and the region that we call home. God, I pray that you would be stirring each of our hearts. Speak to us uniquely that which we need to hear and be reminded of this morning. But God, our prayer is that we can be about the whole gospel for the glory of God 
together. And all God's people said, Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.